Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg and thank you so much for being here. This is a weekly conversation with someone that I find truly inspiring and will hopefully leave you truly inspired as well. My goal in this show is to talk with guests that have a great story to tell. Guests who have achieved something remarkable in their lives and through their story, hopefully get inspired myself, perhaps inspire you too. Um, thank you so much to everyone through the week that's been listening to the show and tweeting out a link to the show. That is the greatest thing you can do for me. If you like what I'm doing here, if you're liking um, the show, if you're enjoying listening to these interviews, if you're you know getting something out of it, and if it's right for you, please send out a tweet. Just pick up your phone that you're listening to this on right now and hit share and just tweet it out, please. Or just send it to a friend on Facebook. Just I listened to this and I thought you might like it. That would be the greatest thing you could possibly do for me. Um, it's I know it's really really warm in Australia right now, uh, and for folks listening in America, it's crazily cold in some parts of America. It's in between here in California and in Venice Beach. It's middle of winter, and it's like thirty degrees. It's really scary. But that doesn't stop me from going out stand-up paddling and enjoying meeting dolphins. And I got chased by a weird robot drone while I was paddling the other day. That was weird. There's this weird kind of submarine-looking thing with a camera on it that chased me on my paddleboard, did circles around me, and then I chased it, then it chased me back. It was Anyway, maybe Skynet's gone online and I didn't notice it. I had an interesting week. Um, explored a bit of Los Angeles that I don't normally do. Uh, I went to LACMA, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, and I saw an incredible exhibition by a guy by the name of James Terrell, a man that does mind-bending artworks using light and projections and apertures in walls. And as a photographer, it completely blew my mind that as someone who's kind of exploring this idea of what it is to create your own vision and just put it out there and see what happens. Like I was completely inspired by this man who went from cutting holes in the roofs of buildings because his vision was that we should just have a look at the sky, but framed through the ceiling, like a giant skylight, but, and then change the lighting inside the room to change the way your eye perceives the sky to buying a crater in Arizona, a volcanic, an old volcano and drilling it out to create an enormous artwork in a mountain. Pretty amazing, really inspiring stuff. If you're coming through Los Angeles, I couldn't recommend it highly enough. Um, I had a really weird morning the other day. I went to yoga and I got really confronted. Um, I always get confronted when the yoga teacher is spending more time DJing on their iPod and less time, you know, taking us through the flow of things. And this really doofy song came on when we were trying to like hold 
I think supped a butter canasta. It was like something weird that didn't require doof. I got really confronted by it. And then we were f- 10 minutes into the, into the class and uh, a latecomer came down and just plopped her mat down between me and the next lady. So I had to get up out of my pose and, and push, pull my mat across. There was plenty of room in front and behind me, but she decided, no, 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 I want to be here. And ultimately, though, I was really grateful because in that moment, not only was I pissed off with the doof and this person late coming, but then I got to breathe in. I was given this chance to breathe in and just be in acceptance and be in acceptance of the music and be in acceptance of this woman who I don't know what was going on in her day. She might have just had a hard time arguing with her boyfriend or her husband or had a hard time dropping her kid off at school or whatever. But I had this chance to kind of be confronted and I honestly, I got enjoyed I enjoyed being confronted and I enjoyed challenging that. And then I breathed out and um, it was all okay. If I was in acceptance, it was way easy. And I got on with the class and I sweated up a storm and it was, it was really, really good. Anyway, let me tell you about my guest today. I am so grateful. This guy is a get, as we call in the industry. This guy is, without a doubt, the king of reality television. You Google his name, Matt Kunitz. That's the first thing you see. He's the king of reality television. He basically, he worked on a show, an MTV show called The Real World, which I think he mentions is in his 28th or 29th season right now. He worked on a show called The Real World when he was a very young man and was there at the, at the when they were developing how reality television is made. Oh, right. If we all talk to the contestants about one thing, then we kind of skew their behavior. And so we should be careful how we approach the contestants and let's watch out how much we talk to them because we don't then form relationships with us. And like he goes into all this detail of like how the television that I make now, the television that I'm a part of, whether it be uh, Idol or, or Photo Finish or, or Batch or Got to Dance, like any of these shows, the craft and the form of how we make these shows was defined by men like Matt years ago in the early 90s when they were first first pioneering this way this new way of making non-scripted television and it's fascinating to listen to absolutely fascinating to if you've ever watched if you've watched a reality show you've got to listen because you just can't imagine the stories he tells about how they discovered the way they need to interact with the contestants and and, and back and forth um he and i met when i was um i went to network on a show of his which he talks about at the end of this this podcast um and we've maintained a, a great friendship. He's a he's a very very powerful man, very powerful man. Um, he worked on the Real World, then he worked on Fear Factor, which is one of the biggest shows that um, of the last decade on NBC. And he also created Wipeout. He created Wipeout, and he goes into great detail about how he did that. But there was a time when he was 27 years old, and he's running the Real World. He's running the biggest show on reality television. Uh, he's not the reality television, like television full stop. Um, and you'll get to hear it. He's a very personable man. He's a really lovely, lovely guy. He does share with me a story that has never been told. There was famously an episode of Fear Factor that got pulled because it contained a stunt that was so gross um, that they wouldn't air it. And very graciously, he shared that story with me. Now, it is a story about a segment that was too gross for television. So it's really gross. All right? So I'm just warning you now, if you're planning on eating while listening to this or get haunted by the thoughts of putting things in your mouth that don't belong there, um, maybe around the 60-minute mark, kind of fast forward about 10 minutes because he goes into great graphic detail 
about this stunt. And then he shares very, very generously, he shares the processes behind how the episode and, and what it took, what it finally took for an episode to, to not go to air, the, the stunt that was just too gross. Um, which is, you know, it's it's a reality of reality that sometimes you can't put things to air. You just, well, oh, it was too much. Um, it was really cool of him to share that story. But just generally, if, if, if you work in media, if you work in media at all, or um, if you watch reality television, you're just going to want to listen to this because he just lifts the curtain. He lifts the curtain and, and, and just describes some processes behind making these shows that will really, really surprise you. You'll get that he's a really passionate, passionate man. And there's a thing that he, he talks about in this, which I absolutely love. Um, the only thing that he takes seriously is safety. Other than that, we're just having a good time. And you really get that when you listen to him, that he just loves what he does. And I can't wait, can't wait for you to enjoy this. My guest today is Matt Kunitz, the king of reality television. We talk about what it was like to get his start at the very inception of modern reality TV and what it took to learn his craft, the process that he used to create Wipeout, the story behind the famous Fear Factor episode that was too much for TV, what it's like to work on the hit shows, but also how he deals with when they don't work, and the difficulties one faces when trying to jump a speeding inverted car through an exploding moving train. Um, this is amazing. I, uh, I'm so happy you can do this, Matt. Me too. This is really, really great. Matt Kunitz and I, when did we meet? We met in 2006? Roughly. Yeah. 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 And um, we've, we've known each other since then. And um, I don't know, how do you react when, because you know, I, I do my homework, and the number one search result that comes back for your name is the king of reality TV. Yeah. At least it's not the king of donkey semen, so. <laughs> we'll get, we'll to, get that. to that story. Yeah. We'll get to that story. There's so much I want to talk to you about, but because you are responsible for creating um, some of the most well-known formats in reality television uh, for the American market that have then been sold internationally. So if the shows that you've been a part of, if Australia hasn't seen the American version, they've seen the Australian version. Sure. Of the show of the shows that you've been a part of, but you're also there from the very earliest earliest stages of reality when you worked on on the real world on MTV, which I'd like to talk to you about and and kind of get from you what that experience early on was like and how that served later on, and then also what it's like to throw someone off a cliff and get paid for it and make someone drink donkey semen. We're just going to keep coming back to that. <laughs> I will hook back to the donkey semen as as much as you like. Um, so. For pe folks that don't know, The Real World was on MTV. It was 1994, I think. No, no earlier, 90, 91. 91 was the first season. Um, there was an American show called American Family. Was that mm -hmm. what it was? The it Loud was, Family. Yeah. And they basically just rolled tape, rolled film on, uh, on a family. And it was kind of loosely based on that. Seven Strangers Put Together. What was the line? Seven Strangers Put Together. And when... The Find out what happens when people start getting real. 
yeah. or something like that. Yeah. And it was just seven people in, in a house of different ethnicities. Pretty simple. Se- sexualities. And diverse were, people, seven diverse people. Yeah. They, Mary Alice and John figured out early on that diversity would bring drama yeah. and that you really didn't have to do anything. You could just put these seven people in a house and film them 24 hours a day and, and the magic would happen. <laughs> and now they're going into their 29th season. My goodness. That's amazing. Yeah. But you'd, so you'd just finished college. Were you still in college when you started that? I graduated from USC in 1990, and one of my first jobs was to become the assistant to Mary Elson John, the two executive producers and creators of, of The Real World. And this was season two. So I had watched season one, the New York season, and was just, just fascinated by it. You know, it came out on MTV, and I read about it and, and then you know, tuned in. And I would watch it, I think, a little differently than the average person. I was always, like, as the cast would be walking by a window, I was trying to see like a reflection of the cameraman. I was trying to figure out, like, how are they doing this show? Because it was so unique and so new that we'd never really seen anything like that before. Everything was scripted up until that point. Um, so that was the first season in New York. It was amazing. I loved it. And then uh, I heard that they were coming to L.A., and a friend told me that the executive producers were looking for an assistant. I applied and I got the job, and um, then I ended up running the show. But you got, but you got the job because you were you were better than everybody else at something, I guess, or I gave a good interview. You yeah. Know, but what what was interesting about the show back in those days is that it was a very small crew, very small budget, so um, you know everyone would do multiple jobs, and because we were shooting in L.A. and the office was in, was in L.A., I would assist Mary Elson John. And George, for sure, he was the um, supervising producer. I would assist them during the day. And then at night, because I was young, I didn't have a family, I would go to the set and work until I you know, couldn't stand anymore because it was 24 hours a day. So you know, I'd work till 2, 3 in the morning just learning how to do audio or direct or shoot a camera or just whatever I could get my really? hands Really? You were on. rolling cables and you were setting you, mics? You name it, uh, lugging batteries. Uh, just, you know, any opportunity I could get so, to be on set and to participate. So in the day, let me just kind of explain. A lot of people may not understand what it is to assist a producer. You are doing everything from getting coffee coffee to, to doing five hours worth of research on something. Yeah, to- answering the phones and, uh, you know, typing letters. Uh, and back then, email did not exist, believe it or not. I mean, if it did, it was like very few people were using it. Yeah. I remember when we did Real World London, which was season four, the, the cast members had email and we on the crew, the, the older people, so I was probably maybe four or five years older than these cast members, we thought, like, this is so dorky. Like, why would you not just pick up the phone and call someone or write a letter? Like, what is this email thing? Like, we really thought this was just sort of a stupid, dorky, you know, fad. But yeah. anyway, so I would assist during the day, um, all day long for Meryl and John. And I had, I had a very important role um, on the show that I think is, uh, is really what made me succeed on that show. They, the show is about the cast's interaction with each other. It's not about the cast interacting with the crew. So there's a real strong line where the, the crew is not to talk to the cast at all during the entire 20 weeks of filming. Um, they can say, good morning. They can say, I need to put your microphone on. I need to take your microphone off. But that's it. Because they really don't want relationships forming with the crew. However, there's one person, and they decided in New York there would be just one person that has to be the main contact for the cast because the production needs to know at any given time what is the cast up to, where are they going, what are their plans for that night so that we can be one step ahead of them. If they're all going to go bowling, we want to know that. We want to call the bowling alley, clear the bowling alley, get the crew ready, and, and be there. So 
I got that job. Um, so in addition to being the assistant, I was the main cast contact. And what I learned very early on is that information is power. I had all the information. So everyone, the producers, the directors, all had to come to me for this information, and I was sort of the gatekeeper. Um, and it, when you know, when the first, when that LA season ended and it was time to go on to the next season, you know, I had sort of created this valuable position. So you know, it was now they were going to San Francisco, and they said, well, "Do you want to come?" I said, "Sure," but you have to make me an associate producer. And then they were going to London. Do you want do you want to come? Sure, but you got to make me you know, coordinating producer. And then eventually you have to, I'm the only way I'm going to stay is if I'm running the show, right. which is what happened for the last, I did, uh, I ran Seattle and Hawaii. So obviously, I mean, and this is also, I think a really important thing for people to hear in that once you're in, just learn how to do everything, everything, be the first person in, be the last person out, never complain, you know, don't bring any drama to work. I mean, I see that so often where it's like, just like leave your drama at home. Like, I mean, it's fine. Like, I believe that because we work so hard and so many hours, like, we should be friends and we should, but like, you know, that crazy drama, you just got to keep that at home. And, and you got to Leave it to the cast members. The, That's what they're here yeah, for. Yeah, leave it to the cast members, you know. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, I, I worked because, again, it was a 24-hour a day show. I was working six, seven days a week, probably 18 hours a day. I didn't have a family or a wife or at the time a girlfriend. So it's like I just focused on the work and it was great and it was fun and it was a very young group of people. It was MTV. So it's sort of what you would expect. You know, it was a bunch of 20-year-olds making a TV show. That was writing its balls off. Did you have an idea of what you were creating? Did you have an idea of how massive it was? Well, I knew that the New York season was hugely successful. And then, um, you know, every season after that just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And it was a huge show. And 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 what's it like? Talk about the effect of the second batch of cast that have seen the first show. Because I remember seeing that on Idol when the first we were all doing the first time around. Right. It was very naive. Everybody was naive, not in a bad way. Just like we just, just didn't know what we it was. We just didn't know what it was. Yeah. But this, by the second season, cast members and us as well, we kind of knew how to play it a bit more. Yeah, I think that the, you know, the second season of Real World, they all came in sort of, they obviously had seen the New York season and they all felt like, well, I'm supposed to be this person. Uh-huh. I'm supposed to be that person. They must want me because I'm the angry black person. They must want me because I'm, you know, the the country hick. These were their own perceptions, whether they were right or wrong. Right. And it was our job to sort of say to them, and I always say that, you know, we were half psychologists on that show. And it was our job to say to them, like, or mine or the director. So the director could talk to them when they were doing an interview. I said no one could talk to them. The director obviously would do interviews. And in those interviews, it was an opportunity to sort of remind them that, like, we don't want you here playing a character. We want you here because you're, you're John Brennan. You're this amazing guy that, that we found. And, and um, you know, you're, you've never been out of, you know, out of your hometown. And this is all new and fresh to you. And, and you know, you have very strong Christian values. And you've you know, you've never met a gay person before and you've probably only met two or three or had two or three, you know, black friends. And so we just want you to be yourself. Yeah. You, you don't have to come here and play a character. Don't try to think about this too much. Just be yourself. So a lot of times, it's certainly in the first couple of days, they're just, they're thinking everything that's, they're constantly thinking like, should I say this? How am I going to look? How is this going to come across? So we're, you know, working with them to try to get them to sort of let that go. Just be yourself. Now, it's too stressful to be thinking about every line you're going to say. Are there lessons that you learned and, and, and skills that you picked up in that first season when you were sleeping four hours a night that you still use today right. as the 
Certainly. Well, there was big lessons learned in the first season, which I wasn't there. And that lesson was if you take a pebble and you throw it in the pond, it's going to make great ripples. And don't – and it's, reality is very different today, and we'll talk about that later. But, but the real world, when it first started, and, and really even to this day, is really about not getting involved, not, um, not affecting the reality. You know, it's not scripted. We're not telling them what to do. And we try really hard to not get involved. So there was an, an example in New York where Eric Neese, who was the model, he had appeared in a um, Herb Ritz um, coffee table book. And it was a nude photo. Well, the producers thought, oh, we should put this coffee table book out and let the other cast members sort of find it because then they can see that their roommate was, you know, well, they thought it was just a small little thing, but that turned into a really big issue of sort of the cast not trusting them. Uh, it became an us against them sort of situation, like, you, you know, you're you're trying to screw with us. Mm. And so they learned, you know, very early on not to do that. And then I learned sort of my own, um, you know, I made my own mistakes along the way. And, and one of them was uh, in, in real world L.A., someone called me in the morning you know, they check in or I called to check in with them. It was like a hotline. You just pick up the phone and, and it would just automatically ring them um, and, and vice versa. They could pick up the phone and it would automatically ring me. So I was calling to check in and I said to one of the cast members, what are you going to be doing tonight? And she said, oh, I, I think I'm going bowling. I said, okay, great. So then, you know, I write that down and I called the next cast member and what are you doing? Oh, nothing. Oh, well, you're not going to go bowling with, you know, with Beth? Oh, yeah, maybe I'll go bowling. So I'm like, oh, great, look what I did. Now I've got two people bowling. This is a better scene, you know, in my mind. And then the next person, the next person. Well, anyways, cut to, you know, everyone shows up at the bowling alley. Um, they get in a big fight, which, you know, probably would have happened anyways, but there was a big fight. And and then they all started realizing, like, well, why were you even here? I don't like you. Why did you come here? Oh, well, you know, Matt said you guys were all coming here. So we, what what in... Uh, at first blush would seem like, oh, great, we got a good fight on TV. Again, this was about them trusting us. And now they sort of felt like we manipulated them and took us a few days to sort of gain that trust back. And when you're dealing with, you've got to get an episode, you know, every four or five days, and you've just wasted three days because the cast doesn't trust you anymore. You know, so we sort of learned from that. Like you can't, you can't share information if one you, you person are, tells you something. You are blowing people's conceptions of what reality TV is out of the water. People watch and they think, oh, they're getting told to do that. Oh, well, they've, they've all been. But today, there, there is a lot more of that. I mean, oh, really? If you take a show like Duck Dynasty, for example. Okay. Duck Dynasty is... I don't know if people uh, realize how massive that show is here. That show oh, is like American huge. Idol proportions. It Duck is Duck Dynasty is so huge. This is a, a, started as a little cable show. It's so huge that every network, you know, ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox, all now suddenly want their Duck Dynasty. Like, why can't we have a docu-soap? They never would have put a docu-soap. On, on network TV before, but now everybody wants it. But, you know, a show like Duck Dynasty is, it's heavily scripted. You know, these are huge characters, of course, mm -hmm. but these huge characters aren't deciding every day to do something, you know, fantastic and crazy, which it's like, you know, if you watch Grey's Anatomy, right? It's a hospital. Every episode, there's like a huge bus crash, a plane crash, a, you know, the most amazing surgery ever, right? They're condensing it all. So Duck Dynasty, yeah, these guys are big characters, but come on, they're not building a, a new office every episode or going to, uh, you know, everyone's going camping this episode. These things are very well planned out and scheduled. And so I, I believe that reality is sort of 
it's taken a turn now where it's much okay. more manipulated well, reality. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that because I kind of yeah. want to talk a little bit more about where you see things going a little later on. But just at, for the start, I'd like to really talk about your path because I always find it fascinating how people like yourself have risen to be where they are. And particularly that, you know, it always comes back to that Malcolm Gladwell thesis of 10,000 hours mm-hmm. that while you were doing real world, you were you were just there. You were just. I think I did my ten thousand hours in the first season of Real World. I mean, it was crazy the amount of hours we would put in. But yes. Yeah, I was. I was like that when I was in my first two years in radio because I was. I was doing radio and I was also playing in a band. And so, like between the two of those things, because not only was I doing my overnight shift, it was also in there during the day, you know, taking meetings and like just being around and helping out with the breakfast show and la la la. I would sleep three times a day for two hours. <laughs> That's how I slept. Yeah. But I was 21. Yeah, so you didn't need it. No, no, no. Well, I did actually. <laughs> I did one 48-hour shift where like, oh. I was like falling. It was real world San Francisco. And I was by the 48. ended up having to travel. It was like a last-minute thing where I had to go to with uh, Rachel to Arizona with her family. And I was like falling asleep on the stairs, you know, at, at the end of oh, 48 man. hours. That, that is tough. But yeah. at, at the end of – towards the end of your time on, on – on real world, that's when because uh, the show had existed before you got there. But then there was there was. Hang on, tell me how Road Rules turned up. Was that like the first show that you kind of created at that level? No, no, no. I was not responsible for Road. That was Clay Newbill. Um, I did a Road Rules Real World Challenge. So I I had um, you know worked on five seasons of Real World, and then they wanted to do a challenge where they would take the real rollers and the road rollers and put them together. Um, so I did that, but I, no, I did not create road rules. Right. I wish I could take credit for that. But, <laughs> but you did, you yeah. did. But I did one of the challenges and, and from that challenge, that's sort of where, uh, I think my skills for, you know, doing fear factor and, and wipeout came from. So. Yeah. So but that, there, that's a big leap getting to, I mean, we're sort of skipping a big step. There was so. a bunch of, there was a bunch right. of stuff in between. Well, what happened between road rules and fear factor? So, uh, the last season of Real World that I did was Real World Hawaii. And and I had, you know, intentions of continuing on and doing more seasons of, of Real World. It was, again, hugely successful uh, and it was a lot of fun to do. I had a friend that I went to USC with, uh, John Berman, who was a reporter for The Hollywood Reporter, which is our industry trade, one of the industry trade magazines. In a time before and, Twitter, we had these paper things we would hold in our hands. You'd open them up and read and, them. And read them. Yeah. And then you'd say, did you see that? And you'd pass it over and someone would read it. Exactly. That was like an old school retweet. Right. <laughs> so John called me towards the end of the Hawaii season and said, hey, can I do an article about you? Because, you know, all these networks are sort of getting interested in reality. And we, we know that MTV has been doing it for a while, but there's rumors about this big show called Survivor that's going to be coming to CBS. And so I'd like to do an article about what you do on, on the real world. So I said, sure. Um, he, you know, wrote this article and it was, a, it ended up being this two page spread. It was a huge color picture of me in front of this wall of monitors. And, and, you know, it was basically like, you know, I think it was titled living in the real world or something like that. So the day that article came out, suddenly my phone started ringing off the hook. It was all these agents and working on the real world, you're so far removed from Hollywood because you're in London for a year, San Francisco for a year, Hawaii for a year, Seattle for a year. You're not in that sort of Hollywood world. So I, I had never spoke to an agent before at this point. I mean, here I'm running the biggest show on cable television at the point, but I had never had a conversation with, with an agent. And so all these agents were calling and, and saying, you know, we can represent you. And I'm like, well, why would I need you? I mean, I've got a good job and like, well, you know, the networks are looking for people like you now. We can get you those meetings. We'll get you in there. 
They said, okay, well, I'll be back in LA in a week. Uh, so I met with a bunch of agencies, ended up with ICM, and they said, we're just going to take you out for some meetings. And, you know, I'm still sort of moving forward like I'm going to do the next real world. And But I started taking all these different meetings. And in, in a period of two weeks, I met with every network president, every studio president in in town. Uh, and I was nervous. Like, I thought, like, you know, they're all going to ask, you know, what are you going to bring to us? What kind of, you know, what kind of program do you want to do? Not one person asked that. They all wanted to know about Puck. That's all they want to know about. Tell us about Puck. Tell us about Ruthie, you know. There's, there's characters on characters the show. Characters on the show. Yeah. You know, Puck was the crazy guy in San Francisco that picked his scabs. And Ruthie was um, an amazing um, girl in, in Hawaii who had an alcohol problem. And, and you know, that sort of unfolded on the show. And so they only wanted to talk about these characters of real world. They were fascinated by the show and how we made the show. But no one really said, like, what do you want to bring to, to us? Mm-hmm. Um, and I got a lot of offers. And the best one was NBC, who said, you know, we, we want to bring reality to the network. Um, we want to give you a deal here where you'll come and we'll pay you much more than MTV. I mean, it was, like, shocking how much more they would pay than MTV. I, I didn't even know that existed. So um, that one article completely changed my life. Wow. So then I, I went to NBC and had a deal there, and um, that's where Fear Factor came from. So, so And this is what is – the article came around because this is a guy that you had been friends with from... Yeah, just a, a college, college friend. Like he was a neighbor in, yeah. in, in college. Apartment. And it's not like a stranger wrote this thing about... You know, and what I'm just trying to point out is like it's, a, it's about the friends you make and the friends you keep and the relationships you maintain. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And then that, that article came out. And, and what did you say to Real World? Hey, guys, sorry, I'm going to NBC. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know... They were so great, and I'm still friends with John Murray today. Mary also has passed away, but John and I are still good friends, and they were incredibly supportive. Um, and it's such an amazing um, training ground for people because, um, again, they just let you. I mean, look, I was, I mean, I was under thirty and running like the biggest show on cable, you know, and the fact that they would allow me to do that and say. You know, Maris and John would stay in L.A., and they were running their their empire, mm-hmm. but they they would say, you know, you go off to Hawaii and run the show. And they would show up for the opening week and maybe when they moved out. But other than that, um, they let me do my thing, which was really amazing, um, you know. But all that served you. for what, So when you get to NBC, what was the biggest thing? So noticed? NBC, that, that's so. What's know, the biggest difference? Like, can you give folks an idea of what that scale jump is like? Well, it was bizarre because I got there and it was, you know, I was hired by Ted Harbert, who was the president of the studio. Uh, and, you know, they, they said, okay, well, you know, here's your office and here's your assistant and uh, here's your, here's a budget code. You know, if you ever need to buy anything, just put it on this budget code and, you know, we'll pay for you. Whatever. You go to the movies, we'll pay for it. Go to lunch, we'll pay for it. It's like, really? Like, every time I go to the movies, you'll pay for it? Yeah, just whatever, you know. And it was, I mean, it was amazing. And, and this was in the heyday of NBC. I mean, this was like, you know, Friends was on and, and you know. Seinfeld get, was still on. I believe Seinfeld was still on. Yeah. And, and, you know, they would have these huge parties every week because the ratings were so great. And uh, the, the, um, the Olympics came around and um, in Salt Lake City. And they said, uh, hey, you know, you want to come to the Olympics as one of our VIP guests? And it was like, you know, this was a world I was not used to. They, like, flew us first class. They said, you don't need to pack anything. Just tell us your sizes. They flew us first class. We got there. They, they had these huge suitcases just completely full of, like, Olympic clothing. 
because everything you wore would be like, you know, like Olympic, you know, garb. There was a, they took over this entire hotel and um, it was for, you know, all their VIP, the, the big ad buyers, their big producers. And I mean, at that point, uh, well, at this point, I guess I was already doing Fear Factor. So in their minds, I was one of their big producers. I kept questioning, why am I here? But <laughs> so you'd go and they would, um, there was a, like a VIP ticket booth and you would go up to the booth and you'd say, I want to go to, I want to go to this event, this event, this event. And they would just give you the tickets. They were the best tickets in the house. They, there was two hour lines for security. They would just, just take you right past the lines. If you didn't want to go to an event, you'd say, oh, I'm going to go skiing today. They'd take you skiing. I want to go snowmobiling. They'd take you snowmobiling. They had this, um, uh, they had a conference room downstairs in this hotel that was a 24-hour sort of hospitality suite. They built an ice skating rink in the middle of the conference room, and they had, like, Olympic ice skaters coming and, like, doing demonstrations. Uh, there was food, like, 24... It was just... It was, like, over-the-top incredible. Like, this was, like, okay, this is Hollywood. You know, yeah, right. awesome, but... Anyways, I'm, I'm skipping way ahead. No, um, but you're just giving yeah. us... That's a great picture to give us an idea of, like, that's the kind of spare cash they had to do fancy things... On yeah. the side. On real world, we'd be lucky if we had like a Coke in the refrigerator and some, you know, <laughs> Cheetos. You know? Yeah, right. So when you came to NBC, the, 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 there was a version of Fear Factor that existed from, was it from the Dutch? Well, so I came to NBC and I was there for about, I had a two-year deal. And I was there for about a year just trying to come up with what's that big, you know, network show going to be? What is their, what is their um, you know, their survivor? Uh, I saw um, the international version of Big Brother. I tried to bring it to NBC, but it was a William Morris project, and I was not a William Morris client. And oh, that's a, that's, so that's another agency here in Los Angeles. Yeah. So, and, and, yeah. and, you know, and agencies want their clients to do yeah. their show. So I was not able to bring that. I tried. I couldn't, um, and that show's still on the air today. Um, so I had been you know, trying for a year to get something going, but there was no pressure. I mean, they were really great. It was just sort of do your thing. Like, it'll happen when it happens. And, um, but then I got a phone call from, from, I believe it was Ted Harbert. And he said, we made this, we purchased this show. It's called Chains of Love. And the idea is that we take a woman and we handcuff her to five guys and, um, and they date over the course of a week. And then during the week, she'll release one guy every, every day she'll release one guy. And we bought the show and we, this is going to be our first big reality show. And we want you to produce it. And I said, you have got to be kidding me. Like, this is terrible. Like, what are you thinking? And I was comfortable enough to tell this to, to Ted. I said, this is a horrible idea. This is not what your network's about. This isn't even what, I mean, at the time, like Fox wasn't even doing reality, but it's not even a Fox show today. It's just too, like, just, it just was, it was bad. It was just a bad idea. I thought it was terrible. And I said, I don't want to do it. And he said, well, we're sort of in a bind because we bought nine episodes of this from this company called Endemol. Endemol did not exist in the U.S. at this point. Um, so they, they bought this nine episodes, and they really needed to do it. And I said, I, I don't want to do it. I'm just not going to do it. And I went home that night, and uh, my phone rings, and it's Scott Sassa, who's the president of the whole network. We had never had a, a phone call before, or I don't even think a conversation. And he calls you at home. He calls me at home. Oh. And he's like, hey, buddy. And it's like, hey, Scott, you know, how's it going? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, listen, I just wanted to talk to you about the show, you know, Chains of Love, and sort of an important thing for us, and and um, I really would like it if you would do this for us. So I sort of gave him my whole speech again, why I thought this was a really bad idea for the network, that it just wasn't their brand, 
it was sleazy. It wasn't the way for them to get into um, the reality business. I just thought it was just a bad, bad idea. And I said, and also, I only have one year left of my deal. And to spend a year doing Chains of Love um, and you know, sort of blowing my whole deal is just not what I want to do. And he said, well, what if I add two years to your deal? And I was like, oh, don't do that. Because <laughs> if they picked up my deal, it was like even it was an even more lucrative deal because it was just the way it worked if, if they do the pickup. And so here I had a year left and he was offering to add two more years to do this show. So I said, okay. <laughs> so, so we started. As you should. <laughs> yeah. So we started um, pre-production. Endemol did not exist in the U.S. So we hired this company um, that um, is called Evolution that um, was a production company and said, you know, can you guys sort of do the production services? We're going to do Chains of Love. And we started doing pre-production. So we were just looking for a house where they were going to live. I took a trip to Miami, South Beach. We were going to get some amazing house where we would move them in. You've got to have externals. You need to make it. It's got to at least look good. In so. and out of the ad breaks. You're gonna have to, you need a helicopter shot of something. Yeah. So um, we started pre-production and Time Magazine, again, back to a, a newspaper magazine, came out with an article and it was, uh, it was it basically was an illustration of a peacock and all of the executives of NBC handcuffed to the peacock. And the title was basically, it wasn't this, but basically like, what the fuck are you thinking? Was basically the title. The, I just explained the peacock is the logo. It's the logo for, of NBC. NBC. And, it's the, a, and it is a peacock. You know? It's the logo. Right. And so it was the the peacock chained to all these network executives. And, and the article went on to say like, this is a terrible, it was everything I said to them. Uh-huh. It was as if I had called Time Magazine myself, which I swear to you, I did not. Um, but it was everything that I had said. Like, I just think this is wrong for this network. Yeah. This is not what we're about. We are, you know, you know, we're just, it's, we're just too, yeah. too elevated. You know, we, we win Emmys here and, you know. So the next day, they canceled the show. I believe that not only was I the first network producer, I'm probably still the only network producer to be thrilled that his show was canceled. It was awesome. It was like the great. So I mean, I called my lawyer right away, and I'm like, "Oh my god, what does this mean?" She's like, "Don't worry, they've picked up your deal. You're you're set. You're good." So now NBC was an interesting position because they owed nine episodes of television to Endemol. So they said to me, "Have you seen the Endemol catalog? Is there anything in that Endemol catalog that you think would work for us?" Now these are shows that have worked overseas in other Just, countries, so people understand how it works. Like. Um, there, there's a filing cabinet or, or a hard drive somewhere just full of DVDs and, and what we call the Bible, which is like a big 400, 800-page document of exactly how a show works. And it's like, this worked really great in Israel. This worked really great in Sweden. This worked really great in Denmark. Um, but we haven't figured out how to make it work in London. So we're just going to put it in the filing cabinet and we'll just leave it all there. Right. Pretty much, yeah. So they, they said, have you seen anything in their filing cabinet? You know, and And – there was a guy, and I don't remember his name, who was an Endemol, a European gentleman who would come around and he would show all of his stuff to anyone that would listen. Uh-huh. You know? He was a good salesman. And, and so I had seen this show called Now or Neverland. And Now or Neverland was the European version of Fear Factor, but a much tamer version because they just don't have the budgets over there. Uh, but what appealed to me about the show is that there was these big stunts. And having done this real-world road rules challenge where you know, we were throwing people off the stratosphere on bungee cords. Um, 
breaking world records, highest bungee jump ever. I think it's probably been broken now. But um, so having that experience, when I saw Now or Neverland, I was like, this is interesting. And they, it was it was a different show. They would bring in, uh, it would be country versus country. So they'd have like 12 people from Belgium versus 12 people from Israel, let's say. And, We're just playing, know. replaying World War II in a game show. Let's Yeah. <laughs> and they would they would do these crazy challenges. And it was pretty slow for U.S. standards, you know, because you'd be watching basically 24 people do the same stunt. It's like, oh, my God, you know. Uh-huh. So I said to um, Ted Harbert and Scott Sasso, look, I think this is a very interesting show. Um, obviously, we would want to change it dramatically, but I think this could work. Um, and I don't think that it will embarrass the network and it will definitely, um, sort of shake things up because, you know, it's, it's, we'd never seen anything like that on network television. So they said, okay, let's do it. Let's do nine episodes. Um, that became Fear Factor. Now we're Neverland, the format stopped selling and then Fear Factor became an international hit and I mean, was in 50 countries and massive, massive. Yeah. Incredible. What was, when you're give folks an idea of what it was like when you're sitting around, is there like a big whiteboard? Uh, is it like people's fridges where they have all the, 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 the words that they make into poems? Did you have like helicopters and bungee cords and, and, <laughs> you know, and, like, I mean, literally the way it would work. Like I, I could be driving down the street, see the Goodyear blimp and think like, there's got to be a stunt in the Goodyear blimp. Like, what is that? You know. So then we'd go back to our stunt department, and these were like real, you know, stunt guys from movies, and we'd mm-hmm. say, "What could we do in the Goodyear blimp?" And you know, so their coordinators would start calling all these different blimp companies, and then eventually, you know, Monster.com had a blimp, and they're like, "You can do whatever you want in our blimp as long as we can, as long as we see our logo up there." And back in the day. The network didn't care. Like we could just say, "Hey, I've got the Monster.com blimp. I'm going to show the logo." Today, the network would say, "That's fine, but Monster.com has to buy three million dollars in ads." Back then, it was just like, "Sure." So right. you know, I see the blimp. I talk to the stunt department. They come up with this, you know, thing where the person's going to throw a ladder out of the blimp and <gasps> have to climb down fifty. 50- one size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Defeat while it's swinging in the, you know, um, and grab a flag and then get back up, you know. Um, uh, so we did, you know, that, that's an example. We did uh, anything you could possibly do with a you helicopter. You did so many things. I mean, and- I mean, we did literally hundreds of crazy. We did a stunt where one, one of my favorite stunts um, was we were on an aircraft carrier. And this helicopter comes. It was, a, it was a couple's episode. So the helicopter comes swooping in and there's these long lines hanging from the helicopter, probably 50 feet in length. And at the bottom of the lines are two people. So it just comes, we shot in Alameda, so it's this sort of military 
shipyard just comes flying over the, the ships. The people are just swinging out, you know, oh. just penduling them out. It drops them, you know, per, these helicopter pilots are amazing, these stunt pilots. I mean, they're just, like, just the idea of just flying a helicopter, period, but what this guy had to do. So he drops them on the ship. As soon as he drops them, they're still attached to the line. So now he's tracking behind them, and they're able to run. And there is a, um, a giant military truck. Like, imagine a U-Haul truck, but it's a military truck. And it starts moving down the runway towards the end of the runway. The end of the runway is it's going to go off and it's going to be ocean. Into the ocean, yeah. So it starts moving down. So they have to run as fast as they can, jump onto the back of this truck. They're still attached to the helicopter, which is tracking behind them. Um, climb up onto the top. And then on top of the truck, because it had to be quantifiable, we had like hand grenades screwed in. So they had to unscrew as many hand grenades as they could before the truck launches off the ship. So the truck launches off the ship. As, right as the truck launches off the ship, the helicopter pulls them off into the sunset. It, you know, it's a 75-foot drop. It basically hits the water and just explodes. You know, so like it was that kind of thing that we were doing. So the truck, um, hang on. So the truck goes off goes the off end. the end, just hits the water, just just explodes in the water, and they get flown off, you know, literally into the sunset. And then, you know, the next team has to go and try to get more uh, hand grenades than the first team got. So, you know, it was that kind of thing. We did a stunt where we took a car, um, and it, it it had to drive and hit a ramp. And as it hit the ramp, it's a flip ramp, so it flips the car upside down. And it flies through a moving train, which then explodes as it goes. The whole train explodes as it goes through. And they're trying to get distance. So it's like how, it's really about how much guts do you have? Do you floor it? Do you hesitate to get the most distance? So and, then, and then, of course, we did all the gross stunts, too. So yeah. these, these were very expensive stunts. So we, had to, we decided early on we need to have a cheap stunt in the middle. And so those cheap stunts started off literally like, you're going to eat a cow's eyeball. Because yeah. that costs nothing. Buffalo testicles. You're going to eat a buffalo testicle. And then as the seasons progressed, um, we got much bigger with our gross stunts. And they became – that's a funny story too, which I'll, I'll tell you about that. We'll, um, we'll get to the grosses, yeah. which we could which, – which, but I just – you talk about um, – I mean, I can only imagine the technology that it took to even calculate or, or put together those kind of – like the, the stunt rigs that it would take to strap people to helicopters and not pull them in two. Real people, not stuntmen. Yeah. And like, we really – like, you know, you're, you're on a helicopter and you're – you're dropping on a line or you're in a car and you're well protected, you know, yeah. you're never going to hit the ground. You know, the worst thing on fear factor is you might hit the water hard. Like people fall out of a helicopter on purpose yeah. or, and hit the water hard, but wipeouts about smacking into stuff hard, you know? So, <laughs> so fun. we had very few injuries on fear factor. How much time have I got? It's 10 to 11. Do you have to get out here at 11? No, I can go till 1130. Oh, really? Yeah. So that's great. So let's talk about, the gross stuff on Fear Factor because the stuff you're talking about with the trains and the helicopters and stuff, that's that's one thing. But when you're putting people in a coffin and covering them in rats, there's something, a reaction that happens. Scorpions, in the, there's, rats, There's something that happens snakes. in the viewer. Like it, It's a visceral feeling. That yeah. You could, one of the things about Fear Factor, and we did this from, you know, from day one, was that we wanted the audience to live vicariously through the people on the screen. And I truly believe that when people, I mean, I know because I, I hear all the time to this day, when people watch Fear Factor, when we're doing a height gag, people get that tingling sensation in their feet just watching it because of the way we shoot it, because of the, the POV cameras. And that's something that um, 
you know, I'm not going to say we invented the POV cameras, but we certainly were pioneers in, in, in the use of these POV cameras way before GoPros existed. Yeah. Everyone has a GoPro now. GoPros are those little cameras that, you know, they put motorcycles, put them on the top of their helmets, yeah. skiers have them. Everyone has that. Those did not exist. So, you know, we sort of, I would say help to invent that technology and we would put these little cameras everywhere so that you would be, you'd have that POV of that contestant that's 500 feet up walking a tightrope across the dam. So, you know, when you're watching that, you're getting that, t- that tingling sensation. The gross stunts are so gross, you're getting nauseous just watching it. The underwater stunts, people at home are holding their breath. So they're, you know, it's a, you get a visceral reaction watching Fear Factor. And was that, really a, was that, that. A, like, was that a test, a litmus test that you would put these stunts through before you went and, and, and when did them in the field? Would you be like, it's got to make the person, it's got to make their butt clench when they watch it? Yeah, well, what's interesting about most of these stunts, the gross stunts we could test way in advance because they're cheap and easy. So we would have a gross tester, this poor little guy named Josh Silberman who's become a fabulous producer today. But, you know, he was this, I don't know, 19-year-old PA. He looked like he was about 12. Your old job. I, yeah, <laughs> yes, but I would never do what he did because he would test every gross item that there that we ever Josh came up with. Josh Silverman? Josh Silverman. Josh Silverman. In fact, he would be, he's in, he's, right now he's in Russia teaching, how, teaching like a Russian studio how to make reality TV. But when he comes back, you should do an interview with him oh, because God. his story is amazing. And then he went on to Deadliest Catch and all kinds of stuff. Like, so he's, wow. he, he could write a book. But anyway, so this little guy, Josh, He's like five foot two and he looked like he was 12. He would test all of our gross stuff because we want to make sure like if, if it killed Josh, then obviously we couldn't use it, you know, so we had to test it on someone who worked for us first. We would send everything to a lab first. So, you know, let's say we're going to eat a, um, a cockroach. We'd send the cockroach to a lab and they would test it and they would tell us like, are there any pathogens in, this, in, in cockroaches? Um, we learned early on that if you're allergic to shellfish, then you're going to be allergic to the cockroach. So. Well, that's that's an important point. If you take one thing away from listening to this, is if you can't eat shellfish, you can't eat cockroaches. So in the nuclear apocalypse, they don't, are not don't, food. Don't eat the cockroach, and we learned that the hard way. So, um, not that anybody—I mean, they just got sick and puffed yeah. up and stuff. But so yeah, so the gross stunts we could test well in advance. The physical stunts are so big, you can't just have a train in your backyard and try it out. So what would happen is literally the day before we would shoot the day before they would the stunt team would go out to the location we'd have the location for 2 days only and they would set it up in the morning and then in the afternoon they would have a stuntman do the test um, and then after the stuntman did the test then we would do what's called a really which would be someone from the crew that volunteers um, to do the test then we'd have to pay them to do the gross stuff but for the big physical stuff they would you know line up to do that so then we would test it that afternoon now there's only you know a few hours left of light Inevitably, it doesn't work. So now we're all trying to figure out, okay, well, how do we fix this? What do we change? Uh, and you, know, you make those last-minute tweaks. And then the next morning, you might have time to do another really test. But generally, no, you just go right into it and, and do it with the contestants. How many reallys did you do? Me personally? Um, I did a lot of the height gags. And I always wanted to do a car gag, and our insurance company wouldn't let me do it. Um, I just think they just didn't want the – they thought that potentially if I got hurt – it would shut down the show and that would be really expensive. Uh-huh. I think in reality, the show would have gone on without me. But <laughs> so I was never able to do a car gag. And then sort of the very, one of the very last shoots that we ever did uh, was a car gag. And the insurance company said, we're going to let you do this car gag. So, so I was like, oh, this is going to be awesome. It was like, you know, one of those cool things we had to like race a car and then at the end of the thing, flip it or something crazy like that. And unfortunately we fell behind on that day and we were only able to do the stuntman test and not 
the really test, so I did not get to do it. So I've, to this day, I've never done a car. Day. So the height stuff, what kind of stuff were you doing? There's a building downtown that's like 50 stories high, and there was a stunt where you had to climb out of this 50-story building, and like Spider-Man, there was a, a ledge on the glass window. It was all glass, this building. Mm. And... Um, there was a ledge that was maybe an inch or two thick, oh, and you had to just sort of walk, and there was a ledge on top. You had to just walk around the building, uh, you know, using the ledge. Around I, the whole building? No, that would have been, I mean, it was like a, a portion of the building, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, so I did that, and there was another stunt where we made a walkway out of these sort of glass, plexiglass plates, you know, hundreds of feet up. You had to walk across this plexiglass plate walkway, and there was another one where... Even hearing a, you describe this, my testicles are hiding up inside my body. <laughs> I discovered I'm not really afraid of heights, which is something I discovered from Fear Factor. So, um, what what goes through your mind? Do you just are you thinking, oh, this is going to look really good when you're up there, or are you thinking this is actually scary? Are you, are you producer hat or well, you, no? Yeah, no producer hats on at that point. I'm thinking like, is this scary enough? And is anyone going to fall? You always want you want failure. It's interesting on on Fear Factor, you never want a total failure. Wipeout, you want total failure. Yeah, like we want ninety percent of the people to fail on Wipeout because it's all about the Wipeout. Fear Factor, you want if you have total failure, it doesn't work very well for us because then uh-huh. it's like, well, nobody could succeed, and the stunt was. And there's that real fine line, like you don't want it to be too easy, you don't want it to be too hard, you also don't want it to only be guys that win it. So it's like trying to figure out stunts that aren't just pure physical brute stunts, you know and um, girls were really good at balancing, so that was always a good equalizer. Girls had interesting upper body strength. If it was like a, we did this thing at Suicide Bridge in, in Pasadena, which is this, that's just a nickname for the bridge, but it's a huge high bridge. And they literally just had to go out there and it was like a monkey bar. They had to step off the bridge and hold onto a monkey bar as long as they could before they dropped. And the girls could, because I guess they had less body weight to hold up. They could actually outlast the guys significantly better holding breath they were good at so it's lots of things we discovered that girls could do well because we didn't want this to just be a male show and and um we wanted the female viewers to enjoy it too so as the the show is super successful you're going season after season you're coming back you're coming back you're trying to push the envelope push the envelope um and then we get to the donkey semen well so the show (laughs) went away so we did um six we did seven seasons of the show and very successful you know and then eventually it went away and six years later, NBC called and said, we'd like to bring Fear Factor back. I'm like, awesome. You know, at this point, I was now uh, working for Endemol. I had left NBC. I was working for Endemol doing Wipeout. And they said, we want to bring it back. Um, but if we're going to bring it back, and this was a whole new regime. There was nobody left at the network. That, uh-huh. I mean, you know, some lower level people, but no one of any significance was left. They said, if we're going to bring it back, it has to be bigger and badder and grosser than it ever was before. So we're like, okay. And you're like, no problem. Well, we, you know, the technology uh, for stunts had come had, you know, leaps and bounds uh-huh. in those six years. So we knew that we could do stuff that we never could have done before and you know, throw people farther and faster and drop them and crazy stuff like that that we, that we couldn't do. The gross thing was tough because, you know, how do you make it grosser and uh, – and still stay within the boundaries of good taste, pardon the pun. So we came up with this one gag, um, which was that we were going to have them drink. At the time, it was going to be bull semen. Um, and, you know, this was going to be – it was horrible. So we were going to drink bull semen. And for whatever reason, we thought there should be a choice, either be bull semen or bull urine. So it was tested it, we tested it with the, you know – the, the doctors and everyone approved it. And then we discovered Josh that... Josh Silverman's like, nah, not interested. Josh Silverman, and at the time, now Josh was actually running the roast department. So he had, we brought him back. Six years later, he's become <laughs> yeah. a really good producer. So he no longer had to test it. He had some other schmuck that had to test it. 
Well, we discovered in the process that bull semen was very expensive because they actually use bull semen. It's, you know, it's used for mating. So it was very expensive. So um, we then discovered that you could get donkey semen. And donkey semen is cheap because nobody's really breeding donkeys. So we came up with this challenge. It was going to be a horseshoes thing. They have to throw horseshoes and however far away you got your horseshoe, the farther away the horseshoe was to the stick, the more you had to drink. And you, it, it was teams. So you'd have to decide, would you drink the urine or the semen? One of them had to decide. So this episode was going to be a family episode. And somebody at the network wisely said, are you sure you want to have fathers and daughters drinking semen together? And we're like, eh, probably right. So we decided we wouldn't do that. And we ended up doing a twins episode because that way you wouldn't have that awkward father-daughter yeah. thing. So it was two sets of guys and two sets of girls. And the first stunt was, you know, some stunt over a harbor where they were climbing around in a car. Hung. It was actually pretty cool. It was a car. It was two helicopters holding one car. And so the car was gyrating, you know, back and forth over the harbor. And they had to climb out of the car. And there was flags all over the car. And they had to pull off as many flags as they could before they got bucked off the car. And, you know, the helicopters were jerking pretty good. So there was these huge muscle-bound guys. I mean, just like, you know, like the crazy muscle-bound guys. They failed miserably. Um, that stunt, and they went home. So now, going into the donkey semen stunt, we had two sets of girl twins. I mean, gorgeous twins, like everything you would imagine in a set of Fear Factor twins. Fear Factor was always known for hot women. That was sort of our thing, like just hot, hot women. And then two guy, uh, you know, set of guy twins. So uh, while we're setting up and testing, um, we realize we're going to have a problem if there's total failure on the stunt. And if there ever was going to be total failure, it could be this stunt. So normally in the rules, if there's total failure, the prize is just cut in half and everybody returns the next day for the final stunt, but the prize is cut in half, sort of a punishment for total failure. So that would mean that we would have three sets of people at this final stunt. Well, this final stunt was the flipping the train, flipping the car through the moving train. And we realized we don't have enough cars to do that many people. We have just enough cars to do our test and then to run it twice. So we can't have total failure. So we're like, okay. So we sort of quickly figure out what's going to cause failure. Failure is generally, has always been when someone, we can always measure it, but what if someone throws up? That normally is called failure. In the normal rules of fear factor, if you throw up, you're out. But we're like, if, if we're ever going to have throw up, it's going to be on this donkey semen challenge. So I don't remember who it was that came up with this wise idea. He said, okay, well, let's do this because we can always measure how much they drank so we won't have total failure because someone would have drank more. But if we throw up, we're going to tell them they have to throw up into the glass and they have to drink that too. So, so well, We're going to get into the psychology of reality quote contestants in a second, but once you finish this story because that is I'm really interested in. So, so we start – as we're testing the stunt, there was this – young female PA that volunteered to do it. It was horrible. We were just watching the test, just like, oh my God, what? I mean, literally, this was probably one of the, this was the second time in 165 episodes where I was like, oh my God, what am I doing? The first time was like the very first stunt. We just had people eat some worms and I was like, I turned to David Hurwitz, my other, the co-EP at the time. I was like, we're going to hell for this. And we got over that real quick. Like that was nothing. Uh. This was the second time where like, what are we doing? Joe Rogan felt so bad. He was the host of the show watching this girl like, chug the stuff that he like went into his own pocket and took like $600 in cash. It was just like, you deserve this. Cause like we were paying her like a hundred bucks for it. He gave her like a wad of $600. This is the PA that, that tested it. Yeah. Just yeah. this female PA that tested it. She was a trooper. 
So anyway, so now it's time to do the stunt. And um, as we predicted, everybody threw up as they were drinking. The, the urine went down really easy. Um, oh, they all were terrible at horseshoes. So they ended up having to drink like 14 ounces of donkey semen and 14 ounces of urine. Oh, what's, so, what's, what's ounces in? Uh, it's like a, that, whatever that, like, like so, that plus some. Okay, so 14 ounces is about 500 mils of, yeah. it's a lot. If you say so, yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot. It is a lot. So sheer volume might make someone vomit. So unfortunately, everybody vomited. They all vomited into the cup. They all drank. It was horrible. It was really, it was like we were shooting. I was like, this is terrible. I don't know how we're ever going to air this. Like, this is really, really bad. Like, it's too gross. The girls were wearing these little halter tops, sports bras. There was just semen everywhere. It just was like, you know, I definitely had second thoughts while we were shooting it. And then, you know, when we started editing it, you know, we sort of toned it down as much as we could, um, really played it for humor, you know, played up the humor. Joe's very funny. You know, he's a stand-up comic. Um, he had great reactions and we, you know, we kept cutting away to the donkey and the donkey would like be hee-hawing in the background. And, um, so then we turned in the cut and I said to my post supervisor at the time, don't lock this show. Lock means like you, you sort of put the final polish on it. And once it's locked, it's pretty expensive to go back. It could cost $10,000 to open up a lock show and make fixes. So I said, we've got time. Just put this show on the shelf because there is no way that NBC has no notes. I just don't believe it. So lo and behold, uh, five, six weeks later, I get a call. I'm not going to mention any names, but, you know, an executive at the network. And he says, yeah, can you come in and talk about this? And he's like, you know, we took another look at it and it's too much. So they sent the, the censor to the Bay with me. And um, I, I've known, she's actually someone that was there from day one. She's great. Judith Lotz, I'll mention her because I love her. Uh, and she sat in the Bay with us and, and we sort of negotiated and got it down to what we thought was a acceptable uh, presentation of donkey semen. You know, we just really played it down, played it for the humor. We, oh, we had edited, we were able to edit out all the vomiting before we ever sent the first cut to them. Uh -huh. So you never knew that they vomited because since everyone did it, you could just sort of get rid of that part of the, you know, thing. And, um, and so now we had, uh, oh, interestingly enough, the, it was the two sets of girls that won this challenge. The guys got eliminated. So it was two sets of girls. Um, and they won the challenge. And, and so now we had what we thought was an arable, you know, bit. And then the next day, well, those two girls went on and did this amazing train stunt, which was one of the most amazing stunts we've ever done. And so now, you know, we're, we've now edited it. The network's approved it. They said, you know, just strategy-wise, we're going to put this towards the end of the run because if it causes a lot of controversy, we don't want to hurt the rest of the series. It was scheduled as second to last. And now the show starts airing, and it's doing pretty well. This is the return of Fear Factor. It's doing well. And they they sort of made a conscious decision not to promote the donkey semen. The show's doing well enough. Let's not cause too much trouble. And then we get a call, and they say, hey, why don't we just, like, maybe just do a little leak to somebody? You know, like, let's just get a little bit of publicity out there. So... Um, we say, we've got this great picture. It's, uh, it's a glass of donkey semen and donkey urine and, um, out of focus in the background is a donkey. It doesn't really say much, but it's, you sort of get it. Yeah. You know? And we have some connections at TMZ. Why don't we just give them the photo? And they're like, yeah, it's a great idea. Do that. And then we'll sort of take it from there. You know, well, that came out and it sort of did it what I would have thought people would have expected it got huge attention and that night like every late night talk show was talking about it lots of jokes 
Well, that came to the attention of the head of Comcast, which owns NBC. He said, let me see it. We sent it to him. He then called the president of the network. So I'm not going to tell you how to run your network, but I, I wouldn't air this. So they decided that that episode would never air, which was such a bummer because that final, I mean, the donkey semen was amazing, but that final stunt was spectacular and never aired in the U.S. Uh. Um, and then the show got canceled. I think we pushed it too far. But you know what? We went out like on top as yeah. far as I'm concerned, you know? So that is, man, it must be like, it is so intense to hear that story. And thank you so much for going into such detail. But, you know, just to get a glimpse of, of not only A, how much the show costs, but also what it actually would take, what it would finally take for them to go, nah. Uh, that, that was it. That pushed them <laughs> over the edge. <laughs> it was like, if, if one of the coolest things that you created was Wipeout, which what happened in the space that you talked about. You said that uh, Fear Factor went off for a while and then, then it came back. After Fear Factor, were there things about Fear Factor that you were like, because it wasn't yours, we'd like, I, sh- I could make I yeah, could make one of these myself. Sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, I feel like I created Fear Factor, but technically I don't get the credit for it because it you know, was Now or Neverland and we adapted it. So I yeah. adapted Fear Factor. Um, but absolutely, I felt that, you know, what worked about Fear Factor was that it was a family show. Kids loved it. Adults loved it. And I felt that there had to be another show that we could come up with that sort of had all the fun of Fear Factor without the gross. And so... Because um, let's face it, a kid will laugh at someone falling over. A kid that doesn't know why it's funny will laugh absolutely. at someone falling over. Yeah. I mean, it's... Just in it's, our brains. It's one of the basic tenets yeah. of comedy is like it people is. falling down, it slipping is. on the banana peel. So we said, you know... Slipping on the banana peel is is funny. So how do we recreate that over and over and over again? And my partner and I, Scott Larson, who um, I had brought on to Fear Factor in the early days, uh, and just he's a creative genius. He just comes up with like the most bizarre, crazy stuff. Um, we came up with Wipeout. And what was the process like? Were you in a room with a whiteboard? Were you sitting in a boardroom like this? Like, it, it, yeah, there was a whiteboard in my office, and. Um, we were just saying, you know, what what works on Fear Factor, you know, and and what you know what works were these big crazy stunts. So how do we do big crazy stunts? But we don't want to do helicopters, we don't want to do cranes, and we don't want to do trains because it, it's got to be different. Uh, and and that's where you know Wipeout. That's how Wipeout was born. And originally we thought it would be like a hundred people would run the course, and then it was like fifty people, and then it was like well, that's just too many, and then it became. You know, 24 people will run this course, and, and it's all about the wipeout. It, we will have, you know, uh, 100 wipeouts in an hour. And it's just constant barrage of, of people falling in the mud. And, you know, we were on the Internet and looking at, you know, people, you know, wiping out on, on YouTube and in, in mud wipeouts and uh, beach wipeouts and motorcycle wipeouts and just trying to figure out, like, what is that? And then from that, we said it's just going to be a giant obstacle course. And, um, and then Wipeout became, like Fear Factor, a really big hit. And, uh, you know, in its heyday was the number one co-viewed show, meaning it's the number one show where kids and adults were watching it together, which is very valuable for an advertiser. That must have felt amazing to have that kind of thing under your belt. Like what's it, wh- once you get it out, wh- when does it, does it really start when you find out, oh, they're making Wipeout in Mozambique? Is that when you, you yeah. really get a thrill? That's pretty cool. So what, what Endemol did, they were smart. They, it was too expensive to have all these countries 
like Mozambique, do their own version. So what we did is we, um, we have a, an, a division of Endemol in Argentina. And so we went to Argentina and we built two wipeout courses side by side, two giant courses that mirrored our first season. And um, every foreign country, and there was 45 of them that wanted to shoot the show, would just fly their contestants and maybe their field reporter. And that's it. And, and a couple staff members. But we had the whole crew down there, the Argentinian crew, that would shoot it, direct it, and send the footage back with them. So really cheap because the set's there. Um, because it was two sets, they could actually run four countries simultaneously because you could have two countries doing the night stuff while two countries are doing the day stuff. Um, and so it was a machine down there. And we could just power through and... and um, Thousands of episodes were shot down in Argentina. That's amazing. Yeah, I, I must feel. And, and as a creator of the show, how much say do you have? Like, do you see the Lithuanian footage and go, eh. "No, I wish I had more say." And in fact, in my new deal here, I'm no longer at Endemol. I'm now at Fremantle, which is Fremantle produces American Idol and uh, X Factor and America's Got Talent. So they're a powerhouse in reality. So my yeah. new deal here, one of the things I said to them was, I feel like I didn't have enough creative input on the foreign versions of, of Wipeout. And I think it could have been a better show across the world had had I been allowed to put my imprint on it. And so in my deal here at Fremantle, um, I'm I'm not only allowed to do that, but I'm, I'm compensated for doing that. So hopefully I'll get a hit here where I actually have the ability to do that. Um, I mean, that's the goal. But it, come on, it must, it must feel amazing to have created a show that has been in, on air in so many countries. So many yeah. countries. No, it's really cool. And yesterday, last night, I played um, the Wipeout video game. Um, this is like the fourth uh, incarnation of it with my kids. And my kids are characters in the game, and I'm a character in the game. Like, that's pretty cool. Like, this morning, my daughter was saying, like, I don't think I've ever been on the news before. I don't know why she was saying that. She's 10. She's like, I don't think I've ever been on the news. I'm like, yeah, but you're in a video game. She's like, yeah. Like, how many people are in a video game? Tony Hawk's in a video game, you know? Yeah. Like, and some football players get to be in a video game. But other than that, like, I'm in a video game, which is pretty cool. I can, you can play my character or my daughter's. That's, That's one of the benefits of creating, you know, <laughs> a, a, massive, a big hit show. A yeah. massive show that runs in yeah. nearly 50 countries And we sold them. 5 million copies of the video game. Oh, so that's pretty cool, too. Mate, that is... That is amazing. Before before we get towards the end of this, because I do want to, because uh, I know you're a very busy man. A part of what you do is you do celebrity versions of the shows that you do, Fear Factor and Wipeout. What's the we haven't really done Celebrity Wipeout yet. We've talked about it. We've had a couple people. Well, like, definitely yeah. Fear Factor because I, I just sure. I kind of want to know because I want to talk a little about reality contestants because uh-huh. I've had experience with reality contestants. Yes, you have. And, and various forms, not so much in the the Fear Factor kind of world um but definitely in being exposed as you know part of my job is being exposed and stimulating very real emotions right out of people that i've come to know which is interesting to say the very least um what in your mind makes a great reality contestant then i want to compare that to celebrity after that and like exactly that so they have to be an extrovert I mean, okay. they, they have to be a huge personality. It's all about the personality. And mm-hmm. especially on a show, well, really on any reality show, but, but you know, a show like Wipeout or Fear Factor, but let's talk about Wipeout because it's the most recent. There's 24 contestants, so you need someone that's going to just sort of rise above all mm-hmm. of that. And, and you know, they're, you're looking for big characters. You don't have a lot of time 
to peel back the layers of the onion. You know, on, on real world, you want like multi-layered characters, mm. you know. They're emotional and they're, but they're also, you know, but they also uh, have a strong side. You don't and, find out about the they, car crash when they were a kid till the sixth episode. Yeah, like, you want to yeah. be able to peel those different layers back and see that, you know, they're sensitive, but they're also a jerk, but they're also, you know, we don't have time for that on Wipeout. Yeah. You just want, like, that's the big, bald, loud, gay cowboy. Like, you just know it because you're going to see him for, like, three minutes and people are going to remember the big, loud, bald, gay cowboy. You know, there's no time yeah. for getting into the, you know, the, the finer nuances. So if of people are thinking about becoming a reality contestant, what would your advice be to them? Put it all out there. You know, in your interview, don't don't hold back. Um, you know, be be who you are because we can see through. We're We're really good at casting these shows now and we can see through when someone's faking it now on a show like Wipeout, if they fake it well i don't care you know i mean if they're going to come on and play the the big loud gay cowboy and maybe they're straight if it's going to work for an hour i don't really care on a show like real world or survivor or big brother where you're going to be with them for a long time you definitely don't want someone that's going to come on putting on a character you really want some you want a real person so and so what's Who's harder to talk into doing stuff, a uh, regular contestant or a celebrity? Um, interesting. That would be a celebrity for sure. I mean, regular contestants, they just have this blind faith that, like, you're not going to hurt me. You're NBC. You're ABC. You're not going to hurt me. You're just – this is safe. I'm just going to go do it. And they don't really think about it. They just do it. Celebrities, I think, are a little bit more like, mm, wait a minute. You want me to get on top of that? bus and you know and run across a double decker bus while it's swerving through a, a street you know i don't think so but it must be fun so. to dangle you know people that america holds dear out of helicopters sure yeah <laughs> i mean let's be realistic though we're not talking like tom cruise here we're talking like you know coolio and david hasselhoff so you know don't you say a bad word about the hoff they, Come on. I, the, the hoff was great he was on our very first celebrity episode He's amazing. A fear factor. He's yeah. huge. He's six foot five or something. He's a very big man. He's, and he and it, got eliminated in the first stunt. I think he was just too big. It was He was on top of this double-decker bus and he just got thrown off too quick. Um, I've, I, I've got to let you go. There was a lot I wanted to get to, but that's that's okay. But I, I did want to talk about you have had massive hits and a lot of people, while they may not create huge television shows that sell in the gajillion countries, they often, they will have successes in their career and go, yes, I've done this. But with every success, sometimes there comes things that don't work. How do you deal with the things that don't work? Because not everything works. But you have had massive success as well, but right. not, not everything works. And how do you personally deal with that when that comes uh, it's along? It's hard. And it's hard because you put so much into it. You know, you put so many hours and, um, you know, it, it, you can devote a year of your life to to a show and then see it fail. There's only been one failure in my career that was, like, significant, that just, like, hurt. I've had shows that, you know, came on and they lasted a season and didn't do so well, whatever. You know, um, 101 Ways to Leave a Game Show was a season and out. Celebrity Circus was a season and out. But that's, you know, we put, in each of those cases, we put, whatever, 10 hours of television on the air and everybody got paid and that was that. But... I did a show right after um, Fear Factor. It was for ABC. It was called The One Making of a Music Star. And um, the idea was, it was a foreign format. The idea was that it was sort of going to be like American Idol meets the real world. So it was going to be a big competition show with with talented singers, um, but but half of the show was going to take place in in a home where they were 
living together and and sort of dealing with each other and and being trained and and um, you know we worked really hard on that show and it was going to be airing uh, twice a week so it was day and date so it was 24 hours a day you're shooting and then turning around the edit really quick of everything that happened in those first couple days for the big live show um, and it was a very expensive show and ABC I would say it was about 26 million dollars the budget and because it was such a big show we couldn't get it out at the beginning of the summer so it didn't start until late so we started sort of in late June or July. So people had already sort of made their summer plans, their viewing plans, whatever. They sort of knew what they were going to want to watch. ABC didn't promote it. It failed miserably. We were on for two weeks. So it was four episodes. <sighs> These poor kids that, you know, when I say kids, they, whatever, 19, 20, 20 22, yeah. they all were secluded. We didn't want them knowing what was going on in the outside world. We just wanted them to focus on the music and not be thinking about the voting and the ratings. So they thought while they were doing this, that they were becoming these huge celebrities. We knew from day one, actually we knew, I'll tell you when we knew, when we, the first night we aired and we opened up the voting lines and like nobody was calling. <laughs> it was like, we're a big network show and there's like nobody voting. When I say nobody, I mean, you know, it was like, it wasn't, you, you, you were hearing like American Idol had 50 million votes last night. And it was like, we had like 50,000 votes or oh, something horrible. Man. We're just like, oh my God, we're in trouble, you know? And these poor kids, they didn't know. They they thought that they were going to become these huge celebrities. And and so after the fourth show, the ratings were just terrible. Um, they canceled the show. And I actually thought it was really good. I think we made some mistakes. Um, the biggest mistake is that we went right to the big stage. So we took these kids and we just couldn't afford to do like – we didn't have the time. We couldn't really afford to do like we're going to start with the small stage and then build up to the big stage. We just went right to the big stage. And it was – there was some technical difficulties and the kids were just – dwarfed on this big stage and they, it was the first time ever and it was like you know it was too huge for them and I think that um while it seemed good in the theater it just didn't play as well to the audience but having said that I don't think it would have mattered because if you looked at the ratings three million people tuned in that's all that tuned in which sounds like a lot but it's terrible for network television so three million people tuned in the first night and that's what they tuned in the second night and the third night so it's like that's all that was delivered. That's mm. all we were able to get. So it's not like 10 million people tuned in and saw a terrible show and turned it off. It's like 3 million people tuned in. That's what, you know. And they I came and stayed. And, and Idol was huge and people were like, we don't want to watch another Idol. Now it's like there's X Factor and there's The Voice and it yeah. works. But So that was a huge failure and it was really hard because we had to tell the kids to bring them all in a room and say like, guys, you know, hey, I'm really sorry. They, they, they never saw that coming. Yeah. And they, everybody was in tears and actually shed a tear that day. It was just horrible. Just like, And how do you pick you know, up after that? How do you... I was really depressed. Like, it was really depressing. But then, like, you know, whatever. It, it's, it went away, and guess what? Wipeout came along, and it was all fun from there, Would you so. think Wipeout would have come along had you not had that experience? Like, did well, that... Well, I'll tell you what's did interesting. Did you call... I'm asking, like, did, did yeah. that push you to go, okay, yeah. I'm going to have to push even harder? I left NBC to do that show. I needed to leave NBC. That was an Endemol show also, and I had been doing Fear Factor with with NBC and Endemol. But but this show, this music show, was at ABC. So Endemol, I had to leave NBC to do this show. So I gave up my big NBC deal to do that show. But had I not done that, then I wouldn't have been with Endemol, you know, in, the, in a new deal with Endemol. And maybe, no, maybe Wipeout would not have come about. Right. So, you know, but listen, to have only one, like, really hurtful failure in your career so far, and I've been doing this for 20-odd years... That's not bad. 
23 years, I guess. Like yeah, any, 23 years. Anyone would take that. Yeah. Anyone would take that. I know you have to go. So I do want to ask uh, just a few final questions. What do you think? You know, you can talk past or present. What's the best show on TV that you haven't made? When you watch, you go, damn. Oh, what, <laughs> Homeland. I mean, you know. Oh, like, we're talking reality. Oh, you're talking about reality? <sighs> Interesting. Best reality show. I mean, look, Survivor's amazing that it's still on and it looks great and it's slick. And, you know, I mean, Mark Burnett is, is an amazing producer. If I was to look up to, you know, another reality producer, I would say, you know, any of Mark Burnett's shows are, are really good. And they just, they just, they have production value and they look, well, they're expensive shows and they look it, you know. Yeah. So, you know, I would say uh, most of Mark Burnett's shows, I would. What have you, um, what have you learned or how has your opinion of just people changed when you kind of go, really, you want to you watch this? All right, I'll make more of it. Like, <laughs> has that altered your opinion of society at all? No. You know, look, we don't take ourselves too seriously. We never do. I mean, I always say, like, we, the one thing we take serious is safety. And other than that, we're just having a good time. We're not, it, you know, we're not trying to solve the world's problems. We're just entertaining people, you know. Although, I will say this. In the second season of Wipeout, we were shooting a night thing. And when we shoot at night, the lights are huge. You can see them from miles away. And it attracted uh, a higher patrolman came off the road. And, and he was on the set. Uh, and he's, uh, you know, I, I saw that there was a cop on the set. So I went up to him and said hello. And he said, hey, I just wanted to check this out. I have a 16-year-old daughter. We never talk. We do not communicate. Once a week, we get together as a family. We watch the show. We laugh together. It is the only time that I'm ever with my daughter. And I just wanted to thank you. And I was like, whoa. Like, it gave me chills, like, because you don't think, like, you know, we're, again, it's just a silly reality show, but we're actually doing some good. People are laughing. People's problems go away for an hour. Families come together. So, you know, that's, that's the, 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 the sort of the, the star at the, you know, the end of my, my day. That is, that's such an amazing story. Um, I'll, 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 we'll get out on that. I wanted to ask him other things, but, you know, that's an amazing story because that's what you're doing. That's what people do. I watch TV. It's like just for an hour. Right. Just for an hour. Let's just, just shut tune out. Shut everything else down for an hour. I don't want to think. You don't have to think too hard when you watch my shows. <laughs> you just don't. I mean, keep it simple and stupid. There's, there's that. It's called Kiss. Just keep it simple and stupid. And that's sort of my shows. They're amazing. You bring a lot of joy to millions and millions and millions of people around the world, which is incredible when you think about it, man. I try. <laughs> I can't thank you enough for this, Matt. This has been the greatest, man. Thank you. You're the best ever. Thanks, brother. All right. I enjoyed it. And that, my friends, was Matt Kunitz. What an amazing guy, right? An incredible story to tell. And again, just another underline of the common theme that's been running week after week after week of this show. Just when you get in the door with whatever it is you want to do, just 18 hours a day, seven days a week. Like he said, he did his, his 10,000 hours in the first season of The Real World and Luke, you heard what happened with his career there. Like an, an incredible, incredible guy. Um, thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, once again, please just reach down into your pocket or however you're listening to this show and uh, just hit share, tweet a link that you're listening. That would be just brilliant if you could do that for me or just pop a message on Facebook to someone who uh, you know likes reality TV or whatever just hey listen to this that'd be the greatest thing ever thank you so so much I'm really grateful you're a part of this because this is it is one of the most satisfying things I've ever done in my career is this show and I love making it every week I love the responses I get from you every week 
and if you keep listening I'll keep making it because it really is it's it's like the most authentic version of I just love doing this I really do and I'm glad that you listen so I'll make another one next week have a really awesome week do something different every day between now and then just see what happens do something new every day could be go a different way to work could be I don't know say a different thing when you say hello to your lover just do something new every day between now and next week and be an acceptance of the doofy music at yoga and the people that come in late and push you out of the way have a great week sleep well dream of beautiful things <laughs>